Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the Sultan Hassan Mosque in Cairo is widely regarded as one of the most impressive Islamic monuments in Egypt. Built in the mid-14th century, it's admired for its height, its elaborate decorations, its vast facade and the unity of its design. It's also one of the largest mosques in the world. It's named after the man who commissioned it, Sultan Hassan, one of the Mamluk rulers who governed Egypt and Syria from 1250 to 1517. The Mamluks were not a dynasty. They were slaves who were imported into Egypt by the country's previous rulers and who seized power for themselves when the opportunity arose. Slaves who became sultans. The Mamluks dominated their region for two and a half centuries, resisting invasions by the Crusaders and the Mongols before eventually succumbing to the Ottomans. The Mamluk sultans were great patrons of the arts who left behind an immeasurable cultural legacy. With me to discuss the Mamluks are Amira Benison, reader in the history and culture of the Maghreb at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Magdalen College, Robert Irwin, former senior research associate in the Department of History at SOAS, University of London, and Doris Barons Abusef, Nasir D. Khalili Professor of Islamic Art and Archaeology at SOAS, also the University of London. Amira, could you explain who the Mamluks were and how they came to be in Egypt and Syria? Yes, the Mamluks are actually uh, people of Turkish origin who were imported into Egypt by the previous rulers, the Ayyubids, who used them as soldiers. Uh, so they were slave soldiers. And in fact, the word Mamluk means a person possessed or an item possessed. So it indicates their servile origin. But at the same time, we have to understand that this is a very different kind of slavery to perhaps the slavery that most people think of when you use that term. These were very elite slaves. They were very important. They were very powerful right from the outset. And in fact, there was a long tradition of recruiting these kind of slave soldiers into Islamic lands, dating back to the ninth century. Was this getting slaves, getting people from other cultures, pagans, Christians, whoever it was, or non-believers, was this because Muslims thought that they could not take Muslims as slaves? Exactly, yes. It was illegal, by according to Sharia law, Islamic law, to enslave Muslims. So generally, when military recruits were needed, they were brought in from the peripheries of the Islamic world. Um, the Turks were the preferred group because they were known for their martial qualities. They were cavalrymen from the Central Asian steppe, from north of the Black Sea, who were highly trained in the most advanced military technology of the day, um, in archery and cavalry warfare. So when you're trying to get, it, get the listeners away from the, the word slave as conjuring up people in chains going to America in, in boats, you're talking about people who had the status of slaves. What, therefore, was that status more specifically? Their status is quite interesting. Um, when they were recruited as young boys or sometimes as adolescents, they were considered to be Sorry, slaves. Sorry, you say recruited, you mean bought? Or? Uh, they were purchased for the most part, yes. Mm. They were slaves, but they were highly trained and highly educated, and it, certainly in the case of the Mamluk Sultanate, they were generally manumitted at the end of their education. They were also converted to Islam as part of their education. But in a sense, whether they were manumitted or not was not that important because they, they all did have very important status as part of a ruling political military cohort of people. So we have the Mamluks 
the elite guard, the elite soldiers, how did they come to power? In the case of Egypt, it was ruled by a dynasty called the Ayyubids, and the last Ayyubid died in 1249. Uh, there was a period of, of great confusion following that, during which his troops, the Mamluks, gradually um, took control of power, um, first through his, um, his widow, Shagaradur, and then subsequently through powerful male Turkish Mamluks, um, Ibak, Baybars, and various other characters who gradually fought their way to power. So in a sense, it was a usurpation of power from the preceding Ayyubid dynasty. Um, so the soldiers of the dynasty took over and became the sultans of a new regime. Robert Irwin, could you give us some idea of the Mamluk system of government? Well, these Turkish slaves are bought to Egypt and Syria, mostly by Italian traders. They're purchased either by emirs or by the sultan. Those who are purchased by the sultan are given a very thorough training in the citadel, uh, in the arts of horsemanship and also in Arabic. And they then are, depending on their merit, their abilities, they are given military commands. And some of the top figures move into the ruling council. There's a governing council that sort of advises the sultan, or indeed in some cases bullies the sultan, consisting of emirs of 100. There are about 24 of them at any one time. Um, other promising figures are appointed to provincial governorships in Damascus or Upper Egypt or wherever. And some Mamluks are appointed to offices in the household, such as the Ustavdar, who is the major domo who supervises the palace and provisions it, and slowly his powers expand until he becomes the top financial official. And there's also the Dawadar, who is the sultan's inkwell bearer. He doesn't spend much time carrying inkwells around. In fact, he's the foreign minister and he's head of espionage um, and, and the postal service. I think we have to stress for listeners that in order to be a sultan in Mamluk period, you had to have been a slave first. Uh, broadly speaking, that's true. There is a period of a pseudo-dynasty in the 14th century when the descendants... That's of, quite short in the scheme of things. It is, and in a lot of those princelings of descendants of Kalawun were not really in control. They, they, were, they were fronts for powerful emirs who were actually running affairs behind the scenes. Yes, effectively, to, to become a sultan, you have to be had a background as a Mamluk. So we're talking about a unique system then, aren't we? First of all, meritocratic entirely. Secondly, from slaves. And then thirdly, with these, uh, these people able from slavery to command what was a vast territory, Syria bigger than Syria is now, the greatness of Egypt, taking in other territories, a massive territory. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very well-organised, highly efficient system. Um, the, the oddity of it is how one becomes sultan. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of despotism which is powered by assassination or, and by, or by plotting. And, and so sultans, some sultans last only a few days or months before somebody else more powerful and more decisive takes over. The Mamluk rule is usually divided into two stages. Uh, first, the Bari, and then the Circassians. Can you distinguish those two for us? I can, although perhaps the distinction <coughs> isn't so very important. The Bahri Mamluks were overwhelmingly Kipchak Turks, recruited from the South Russian steppes. The Circassians were recruited, in principle at least, from the northwest Caucasus. Um, but one has to remember that the slavers and those who bought from the slavers were not expert ethnographers. They, they hadn't a clue, and if one looks at the racial mix of the Caucasus, there would certainly have been Mingrelians and Abkhars and Ars and Georgians and quite a few Kipchaks, since there were Kipchak colonies. 
in the Caucasus. Um, but from 1382 onwards, a majority, although not all the Mamluk sultans, were drawn from the Circassian race. I don't think that matters so much. Things didn't, that didn't bring any great linguistic or, or institutional changes. They, the, the languages the army communicated in remained Turkish and Arabic. What does change in the late period is it's the after-effects of plague, the Black Death in 1347, a pneumonic plague subsequently in 1374, and then regular outbreaks of plague, and that has all sorts of impacts. Yes, just to talk about the composition of the Mamluks, European, some Europeans started coming over to, to be slaves in order to rise up and share in this uh, military hierarchy. Yes, uh, you wouldn't guess this from the Arab chronicles, they keep pretty quiet about it, but European pilgrims quite often encountered uh, Hungarian, Italian, German uh, Mamluks, some of them being captured in warfare by the Ottomans and sold on to the Mamluks, but others had come of their own free will and made themselves slaves. And some of these Europeans remained secret Christians and held meetings in subterranean chapels. Can I just ask you to develop something you said rather earlier? We're talking about very skillful military force, uh, and particularly skillful on archers on horseback, speed, horses, and this magnificent bow. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because they did sweep all before them. They do. For a um, while. They, they have a tough time against the Mongols who are using identical tactics, but otherwise, yes. Uh, the thing about the, the horse archer is that he, he remains the, the, the state of the art even after the end of the Mamluk dynasty in 1517. A horse archer's bow... Uh, arrow can travel faster than a musket ball and of course he can fire his arrows much faster than an artillery man can manage his arquebus. So they, they're not made obs obsolete by the coming of gunpowder. Doris uh, Baron Zabusev, um, the first person to be formally called Sultan in the Mamluk period was a woman. Can you tell us a little about her? Well, yes. I mean, Shajar Dur had an absolutely exceptional position. And uh, she was really the first person, uh, the first ruler of the Mamluk period to officially bear the title of Sultan. And from this, she remained a unique case in the whole Islamic history. Other women have uh, uh, occasionally ruled, but uh, as regents for the son or inofficially. And uh, this is exceptional case was due most likely to, uh, or was due to the fact that that uh, she already, under her husband's uh, uh, rule, the last Ayyubid Sultan, Al-Saleh, uh, Al acquired great powers. He trusted her enormously and uh, gave her power and also allowed her to rule during and take the reins of the state affairs uh, during his absence. So this was already her situation when, uh, uh, when her husband died and she became uh, the widow and she became uh, allied herself soon after his death and after his son and heir uh, uh, <clears throat> was eliminated by Mamluks, she allied herself with the Mamluks or the Mamluks needed her as a, a symbol of, of continuity as in order that it doesn't look too much like usurpation of power. She maintained this authority, and uh, I think, I, I assume that everyone would have agreed that Tadamabad expected that this is not going to last very long, that this is going an interim situation to legitimize the transition and also to give the, uh, the, the, uh, 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 the impression of continuity and respect in a way with, to Asaleh and Nagmedin, who was the patrons of the early Mamluk, who is the one who started recruiting 
watching them. So uh, it, it gave a sense of continuity. And uh, when she ruled only three, uh, uh, three months, it was not a very long period. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a very short, it was short, in fact. But she continued for several years when she married the next Mamluk Sultan, Aybak, uh, also for reasons of continuity to hold power and authority and even to issue decrees and uh, uh, for, for several years after, um, uh, after she, was, uh, uh, she was no longer sultan herself. She had to, be, to resign in favor of this second husband of her who was the first Mamluk uh, male sultan. Was the notion of legitimacy, it must have been, it was very important for the Mamluks to be thought of as legitimate uh, in, with their own peoples and also with their neighbours and other courts and uh, armies around them, was it? Can you, dis, dis, can you take us into the notion of legitimacy at the time? Because after all, they must have been still thought of these slaves, this army, and suddenly they're sultans and this is a great empire they've taken over. Yes, the legit- legitimacy plays a major role in, in, in Mamluk culture and, and history. Of course, the word slaves, the, uh, uh, they were uh, in a way disdained and looked down by some of the other dynasties around them, like the Ilkhanids in, uh, in, in, in the Mongols of Iran, and later on the Chimurids of Central Asia, and also the Ottomans. They always reminded them that they went, oh, mentioned they should not rule over the holy cities of Mecca and Medina because they were sons of slaves or they were slaves and they were not sons of sultans like themselves. So the Mamluks were aware of that. However, the Mamluks themselves were, on the one hand, they they stressed very much the idea of merit, and this is why they did not, the system was not a hereditary, basically, or in principle, hereditary system. They stuck to that, and when they remained, in spite of many exceptions, they remained faithful to the idea that they rule because they got the position through merit rather than heritage. And they, and they were proud of that, and the reason they were proud of having big purchase. They managed quite successfully within their own territory. They managed to be accepted uh, uh, by the majority of the, of the religious scholars, and their legitimacy was basically, with exceptions, of course, not really contested to rule Egypt and Syria. But in the outside world, those who, their rivals, like the Ottomans, like the, uh, the Mongols, of, you know, who wanted to assume their pos- uh, role and take the, their place, they liked to remind them, and here they had to defend their legitimacy to power. Amir Benison, uh, after that first sultan, perhaps the first significant Mamluk sultan was Baybars, who came to power in 1260. How did he become ruler, and what did he do? Baybars had a very interesting career. He was um, a Kipchak Turk. Um, he was purchased by an emir. His ownership changed over. He, he became the possession of the sultan, a Saleh, who confiscated all the properties of his previous owner. Uh, and then Baybars gradually distinguished himself within Mamluk ranks. He was very important at the Battle of Mansoura against the Crusaders in 1249. Did he but, win that battle? Yes, the Mamluks were successful during that ba- battle uh, on behalf of their Ayyubid master, um, Asaleh, who in fact died during that the course of that battle. So it was very much a transitional and pivotal moment. However, in the immediate aftermath of that, when um, Shagrah Dur was ruling, followed by um, her husband Aybak, Baybars was part of a group of Mamluks who actually fled Egypt to Syria and acted um, a- as a rebellious group 
challenging the legitimacy of those actually ruling in Cairo. Um, however, the Mongol threat, which was developing in the east um, at that time, the Mongol Hulegu was advancing through the Middle East. Um, he took Baghdad in 1258 with his troops. He was moving and advancing into Syria. And that huge danger to the east encouraged the various Mamluk factions which were developing to unite. Um, the main Mamluk at the time was uh, somebody called Kutuz, um, and Baybars and Kutuz were involved in the major battle that the Mamluks won against the Mongols in 1260 at Ain Jalut. And this was the first Palestine. time the Mongols had been beaten? It was a hugely significant battle indeed because it was the first time the Mongols had been beaten. And as Robert mentioned earlier, that was partly because these were two-step peoples fighting in a similar way. So for the first time, the Mongols were up against um, another army which fought in the same way that they did. The Mongols were slightly weakened probably by the fact that Hulagu had returned to China to contest um, the election of the next great Khan, so that the leader was actually absent during the contest. But then Baybars made the next step by assassinating his colleague. He did, yes. Baybars was a ruthless man. He was involved in the killing of an earlier uh, candidate for the throne, Turan Shah. He was then involved in the killing of Kutuz after Ain Jalut. Um, he had a long-standing rivalry with Kutuz. Um, and from our perspective, that makes his accession a particularly sort of nefarious or makes him a, a very, very much a usurper. But from the perspective of the Turks, there was the notion that he who kills a king becomes king. So in the killing of Kutuz, he, in a sense, from a Turkish perspective, became the rightful sultan and he established himself in Cairo. Robert Owen, what did he achieve during his reign, Baybars, the first big sultan of the Mamluks? Oh, his big achievement was not to get assassinated <laughs> or overthrown by a coup d'etat. Looking at the question more generally, there are two things. One's obvious and the other's not so obvious because it's not really recorded in the Chronicles. The first thing is he ties Syria's destiny to that of Egypt. He works away at destroying what's left of the Crusader states. He doesn't quite finish the job. That won't happen until 1291 with the fall of Acre, but he does take Antioch, Jaffa and other places. He also establishes a frontier on the Euphrates against the Mongols. He either deposes or subjugates the remaining Ayyubid princelings in Syria, and he leads a campaign against the assassins, the Ismaili sect in the castles of northern Syria, and they surrender to him. The less obvious thing is that Baibars is the first sultan to have a decent run, you know, from 1260 to 1277 he's sultan, and it's during this period that the whole system consolidates the hierarchy of court and the, the hierarchies of the military command, um, and uh, Baibars establishes military control of the civilian bureaus. He sets up, he sets up a, an officer to look after the, the cops who administer the the. The agricultural revenues. The Coptic Christians. Yes, the the Copts are favoured for that kind of job because they work according to a solar year, whereas the Muslims are used to working with the Muslim year, which moves around uh, the the uh, the calendar. Um, The the Muslims predominate in the the the, the, the bureaucratic and the uh, the diplomatic bureaus. Uh, Doris uh, Barnes Abbasov, Al Nasir Muhammad is another important Mamluk sultan who ruled from the end of the 13th century to 1341, a long rule. What did he um, bring to the Mamluk reign? Well, uh, generally, uh, uh, historians tend to consider the wrong reign of Nasser Muhammad as the Golden Age. 
uh, of Mamluk history, Mamluk art, and Mamluk culture. Uh, one of the main advantage and the privileges he Nasser Muhammad had was to rule that long. No one had such a long reign uh, either before or after throughout the Mamluk period. Also, it was a period after Azahir Baibars, uh, that is a period of peace, consolidation, once the Crusaders, uh, the Crusader and the Mongol dangers were eliminated. So it was a piece of a period of peace, also of prosperity, it, as it happened during this period. The Nile uh, uh, flood uh, was quite propitious for development. Even the area of the city of Cairo expanded because the Nile withdrew to the west, leaving more urban space to be developed there. And this situation also of a of a sultanate, which has very good relationships throughout with the whole world around. So he could just now develop and expand and uh, and uh, he didn't try to expand ter uh, territory, but he had uh, uh, he, he sub um, subdued uh, 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 um, um, Cilicia, little Armenia, and uh, but anyway, he wa it was a period of of peace and uh, and economic growth at that time. Of course, we should uh, remember that the Mamluk Sultanate lived on the uh, largely on the, sp the transit of the spice trade, and for this, it was very important to have uh, international uh, relations and with the rest of the Muslim world. He was a great builder, most of all, and. And this is where uh, he left a great impact. A man who liked all what is beautiful and all what is great. His building program is enormous. Not only what he himself built, but also what he let his emirs around him build. So he completely transformed not only Cairo, but other cities. And it was not only prestigious and religious buildings, like palaces and so on, but, but also a great deal of infrastructural work. So, uh, it, uh, and he, uh, uh, everything, especially in the third period, uh, had to be glamorous. He introduced glamour in Mamluk rule. But it did lead to the idea that, uh, the, the, no, the notion that I read that at that time, Cairo was the greatest city in the world outside China. Um, Amira Benison, one Mamluk ruler who tried to establish a dynasty was Kaluran, who became Sultan in 1279. Can you tell us what he accomplished? Yes, and... I mean, really, and a lot of what um, Anasa Muhammad achieved was in part due to the foundations laid by Baybars and his father, Qalaun. Uh, Qalaun was the father of Anasa Muhammad. Um, he was a military man. Both Baybars and Qalaun were sultans who were very much commanders-in-chief and leading the army. And just as Baybars had moved against the Crusaders and tried to consolidate control over Syria, Qalaun was the person who completed that job. He continued moving. He continued to reduce a number of different uh, Crusader strongholds. Um, he invested Acre. He died shortly before Acre, the last Crusader stronghold, actually fell. But his son Al Ashraf Khalil completed that task. So he made Syria much more secure. He was also the Mamluk who was most successful at actually pushing the Sultanate um, towards a dynastic inheritance. Uh, he was succeeded by his son, Al-Ashraf Khalil. Uh, he was succeeded by other sons, including Al-Nasir Muhammad. And in fact, his descendants, or his Mamluks, ruled all the way up to 1382. Robert Owen, can I come back to Cairo for a moment? I just, uh, uh, just dwelt on it uh, rather briefly there. Can you give this is some idea of what it developed from and what it became, the sort of size and magnificence of it. 
Um, well, one thing that happens is the citadel expands enormously, so that it's housing thousands of people, uh, including a lot of Mamluks in barracks, and it becomes a small town in its own right, overlooking the rest of Cairo. In the centre of Cairo, the old Fatimid palaces and the road between them, the, 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 the street between the two palaces, is those old Fatimid palaces are slowly demolished and instead a kind of grand parade uh, route is made with great Mamluk foundations, mosques, uh, madrasas, that is teaching colleges, and khankas, Sufi monasteries as it were, are built and it makes a, a perfect setting for the, the Mamluks to parade on accession day and things like that. There's also a big maidan or a big open space at the foot of the citadel where, where ceremonies are held and also military exercises. That's happening in the centre. What's also happening is that the Cairo in general is expanding. Uh, there are a lot of immigrants coming into Cairo. It's uh, some of them from the countryside, which is in the late period getting increasingly depopulated. There's a movement to the cities and the Bedouin are taking over agricultural lands in parts of Egypt, but also a lot of foreign immigrants. Uh, when Ibn Khaldun arrived, the famous philosopher historian, arrived in Cairo in 1382, he described it as the capital of Islam. There are a lot of people coming from Seljuk, Anatolia, from Iran, from Iraq, uh, looking for patronage or at least safety. So generally... Um, Cairo really expands enormously in spirit, and that despite the plagues. Uh, Doris, the, they were great, as we've heard now, and they're great patrons of art and architecture. Can you describe, did they have a style? Is there a Mamluk style? And if so, what is it? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think if we went, uh, someone has recently uh, raised the question, is there any Mamluk culture? Uh, uh, of course there is a Mamluk culture and this is most uh, uh, powerfully expressed in the visual arts of that period. There is a Mamluk uh, style of architecture which is based on continuity and, on, on, and also on the other uh, visual arts like the decorative arts and based on what the Mamluks inherited from the Ayyubids but through the enormous and very intensive patronage, especially of architecture, which is, at the end, it's not just architecture, it is the patronage of religious foundation that needed architecture, and this patronage was unparalleled at that time in the whole uh, Muslim world. In many of the arts, we have influences from Muslim Spain, from Iran, from Anatolia, even from Europe. Uh, 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 from the Maghreb as well, from Muslim Spain coming to Cairo. And you see traces of these influences in many aspects. Mayor Benison, uh, they seem to have been extraordinarily well organised. Uh, uh, there's this phrase, the sons of the Mamluks and the bureaucracy. What does that... Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the thing with the Mamluks, um, as we've already mentioned, is that they were really a one-generation military aristocracy for the most part. Um, their, their children were known as the Aula de Nas, um, and they were a group who often had native Egyptian mothers who were Arabic-speaking, unlike their fathers, who were often Turkish-speaking. Uh, and they, they acted as a very valuable bridge between the military Mamluks and the rest of the civilian population in Egypt. And they were also, for the most part, highly educated, privileged individuals, and many of them served in the bureaucracy. And one of the reasons we have uh, excellent chronicles written about yeah. the Mamluks is the fact that the sons of the Mamluks uh, were part of the bureaucracy. Um, they had a foot in each camp, if you like, both with the Egyptian population and with the Mamluks themselves, and they wrote these very detailed histories about 
the Mamluk era, uh, but also served it all kinds of functions um, as men of the pen, if you like, as bureaucrats, as diplomats, as ambassadors in some cases, as religious scholars. So there was a sort of a bridging group who mediated between the Mamluks and everyone else and who provided a very well-educated administrative cohort. These are basically are founded around the sons of the Mamluks. That's right, yes. I mean, they were occasionally recruited into the military, but uh, that tended not to be particularly successful. For the most part, they were kept out of the military unless there was desperate need for them. What was the attitude of the Mamluks to religion? We're told that when they came in from several different religions and were, were converted, how converted were they? I mean, for instance, they liked drinking a lot. What else did they not go along with? Um, I... I would regard the Mamluks as more seriously religious than the vast majority of their subjects. They do receive a proper formal education in Islam and in Arabic, and some of them write religious treatises, and some of them develop such an expertise in Sharia law that they can actually deliver fatwas, juridical decrees, or rather verdicts. Um, The... Occasionally you get hints that shamanism or whatever their previous religion has survived in one or two cases. Ibn Battuta, a North African traveller, mentions the governor of Alexandria who used to worship the sun. So Islam didn't always take. Um, But religion is enormously important for them and it's a very large part of their their right to rule. It's what legitimates them. The first thing is, of course, they prosecute the jihad, which can be called the sixth pillar of Islam. They prosecute the jihad against the Crusaders and the Mongols. Very important as justifying their rule. But they're also uh, protectors of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina from the reign of Baibars onwards. And also Baibars revives the caliphate. The last definite Abbasid caliph was uh, rolled up in a carpet and rid- ridden over by the Mongols in 1258 in Baghdad. But a few years later, a man turns up from the Syrian desert claiming to be a relative of the Abbas Caliph. And uh, Baibars plonks, appoints him caliph, and the new caliph appoints Baibars as sultan, a kind of bootstrap operation. And thereafter, the caliphate is based in Egypt. It, it's a useful figurehead. Um, the caliph has no real powers. He's just wheeled out on ceremonial occasions. But it, it gives the Mamluk sultan, gets these Mamluk sultans a lot of respect in other countries. Uh, Doris Barons, to what extent did the Mamluks try to enlarge their territory while they were in power? Oh. Yeah, well, this is a, a subject that has always been in, intrigued me, in fact. Uh, the Mamluks uh, were strong enough to keep the territory that they kept, that they created at the beginning of the rule to the last moment. They, the, the Mamluk state did not uh, uh, diminish or did not crumble before it fell. It fell at once, so they kept this territory. And this territory is the territory that was created more or less the, uh, within the borders of Azahar Bible, that Azahar Bibles had established. What is very interesting is the Mamluks uh, controlled much more territory than uh, the one they really di- ruled directly. But the whole all, uh, south and east Anatolia, including Kilikia, Cilicia, or Little Armenia, Yemen largely, and and Nubia, and up. So, and many of these territories were uh, um, the Mamluks did not try like the Ottomans after them to continuously uh, colonize and, and and expand the territory. They did a great deal by through vassalage through their vessels in. 
Anatolia, the vessel Cilicia was a vessel uh, state of the Mamluks. Yemen, more or less, a bit more complicated, and so on. So they worked through that rather. Uh, Cyprus in the early 15th century, uh, and from 1527 to the end of Mamluk rule, was a vassal of the of the Mamluk. So, in other words, they took the existing rulers and and asked for a big tribute payment to tribute, them and loyalty. Ca- yeah. Sometimes tribute direct, like for example Yemen, the tribute of Yemen was very important, it was in terms of goods and so on, but sometimes Cilicia also was tribute paying. Some of the Anatolian principalities, for example, it was just being there for strategic reasons as a buffer zone between them and the Ottomans. It's not necessarily the tribute, but just to control and keep the Mamluk, uh, uh, to safeguard the Mamluk borders to uh, uh, Anatolia. So it wasn't a territorial ambition in the sense of Tamburlaine, who also crashed into Syria and disturbed things rather there. It wasn't that sort of territorial ambition. Yes, I mean, uh, what Tam- T- Tamerlands could, could not keep it very, uh, very, very long, and uh, he was his his invasion of Syria was disastrous, of course, for the entire Mamluk period, and uh, uh, for the economies particular, and for the entire Mamluk empire, it has been one of the greatest disasters uh, of Mamluk history. However, he may, did not manage to 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 hold his foot in Mamluk territory, and the man- Mamluk have managed quite bravely, even in the period of weakness in the late 15th century to defend that the territory like when the uh, uh, Ottoman tribe began approaching toward or moving toward, uh, toward the, the Mamluk Empire in the late 15th century. This managed to, to stop them there. Perhaps this was the reason why they did not were looking for expanding. They just were confined to that territory. But nevertheless, uh, Amir Benison, the Mamluk saw defeated or expelled the Crusaders repelled the Mongols, and somehow survived Tamerlane the Great, uh, and somehow, despite the Black Death and the bubonic plague, which is raging from there right across Europe, as, as, as we know, um, to continue to win. Uh, so their system must have been had a great resilience. I think the Mamluk system did, uh, overall, have a great deal of resilience. Um, and I think part of that was... Um, the cultural contributions which they have made, which have already been discussed, that the money they had poured into Cairo in terms of um, building up a religious infrastructure, building up a population who um, had close links with them, whether they were commercial, religious, as sons of Mamluks. Um, and this sort of enabled them to uh, establish a kind of bureaucratic machine, which to some extent ran itself on through this period, despite the the knocks that the Mamluks were receiving. And they they did create a a very sizable territory, uh, as we've heard, sort of ranging through Syria, Egypt, but pushing up into what's now Turkey, Iraq, uh, and down into the Sudan. So they they were a very powerful and important regime. They were greatly aided, of course, um, on the commercial front by their control of the spice trade. But then they, they, the Portuguese came in to try to take the spice trays away from them, didn't they, Robert Irwin? Yeah, in 1487, Bartolome, Bartolomeo Diaz rounded the Cape of Good Hope. Thereafter, the Portuguese have direct access to the spices themselves. One should add, perhaps here, that spices doesn't just mean pepper and nutmeg, although yeah. pepper was important. It's any high-value, low-bulk commodities, so minerals and dye stuffs, all sorts of stuff coming from India and points further east. And the Portuguese have direct access, but they're not satisfied with that. They set about trying to blockade the Red Sea. They find this extremely difficult to do, based on 
from Hormuz and the Gulf and the island of Socotra. They, they're not... They're, and they establish bases in India, but they can't quite um, enforce a complete blockade and stop the Mamluks getting spices. They had great ambitions. They also hoped, having got into the Red Sea, that they'll steal the Prophet Muhammad's body and trade it for Jerusalem. None of this happens. But what does happen, and that is really a disaster for the Mamluks, is it distracts Mamluk military attention. And the Sultan Council Guri, the second-to-last Sultan, sends off his... Uh, Regiment of Musketeers, the 5th Regiment, to the Red Sea area, so it's not available when Selim, the Ottoman Sultan Selim, invades Syria in 1516, and that's part of the big disaster coming. Can we talk about that then, Amir, the big disaster come? Um, the Ottomans, uh, they, they, were, they were expansionist, very, and how, how did they take over? How did they defeat the Mamluks? Well... In a series of campaigns down through Syria, um, I mean, obviously we should probably step back a bit and say, of course, the Ottomans captured Constantinople in 1453. Um, and from that point onwards, they became more interested in span expanding southwards uh, through Islamic lands. They also wanted to guarantee their eastern frontiers against the rising power in Iran, the Safavids. So they had st important strategic um, and ideological reasons for wanting to move south into Mamluk territories as the as the Mamluk regime became more occupied with other issues. Um, although, as Roberts pointed out, the Mamluks were developing gunpowder weaponry, so we can't say that the reason the Ottomans yeah. defeated the Mamluks was exclusively because the Mamluks were cavalrymen and the Ottomans had sort of appropriated a new military technology. Uh, on the other hand, the Ottoman units of the time, the Janissaries, were very, very highly trained uh, and very skilled in their particular form of warfare, whereas the problem with the Mamluks in the later eras was perhaps that they weren't um, training as regularly as they had done previously. There had been problems with attrition in the Mamluk forces due to the repeated uh, plague epidemics, due to uh, there were less Mamluks possibly due to um, declines in revenues in Egypt through poor harvests, um, the rise of the Bedouin in the south. So the, the, the economic underpinnings of the Sultanate were faltering, which meant their army was less strong. But we're also told that the Ottoman army was just bigger. Indeed, yes. As I've said, there were less Mamluks than before, yeah. so the Ottoman army, as it advanced, had the advantage. It also didn't help that the Sultan Kansul Ghori fell, fell dead in the middle of the battle. That must have had a depressing effect on his troops. He seems to have had a stroke and fallen off his horse, and people think, and then people start deserting. I think the Ottoman victory at Marj Darbik was a bit of a fluke. But perhaps at this stage, no one could have would have stopped the Ottomans. They were advanced. I mean, there was something like almost in a kind of in inevitability the way the Ottoman Empire was growing at that time. And uh, previously, the Mamluks had defeated the Ottomans in yes. two lengthy campaigns. I think they might, they could have been lucky. They just weren't. What was the? Uh, what happened to the Mamluks after that defeat then? Well, the Mamluk Sultanate, after the, um, the, there was a kind of transition again. In fact, like the Mamluk themselves began with a kind by 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 using a transition, a ubi trans, uh, uh, transition. The beginning, the same was done 
when Sultan Selim conquered Egypt and Syria, he let uh, Egypt be governed by the by Mamluk Emir and Syria. The same thing higher back in Egypt and uh, in, 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 in Damascus, uh, Janbardi, and these some of them or these emirs had been accused, and probably they did collaborate with the Ottomans to encourage them for the conquest. So they were also rewarded by being the first governors of Egyptian province now and Syrian province separated. <coughs> also the Ottomans included and maintained in after while reorganizing the army uh, in the uh, new conquered territories of Egypt and Syria, they maintained uh, a faction or uh, um, uh, of, uh, of Mamluk, uh, a core of Mamluk. So the, the system of recruiting Mamluk, some of them were the old ones, but also they continued recruiting Mamluks in the old way, not for the entire army as was in the past, but for one of the Mam uh, for one core among the various cores that of the Mamluk army. What would you say was the great legacy of the Mamluks, uh, Amira? I think it's probably their contribution to the development of Cairo as a city. I mean, even if you go to Cairo today, most of the monuments that you will see in which you'll identify with Cairo were built or enhanced and embellished by the Mamluk emirs, not just the sultans, but the entire ruling elite. They introduced new building forms like um, the mosque or madrasa combined with a mausoleum. And that's a, an incredibly powerful legacy. The Kyrene skyline is still in many ways in the old city, a, a Mamluk skyline. Also literature, the, the literary heritage of the Mamluk period is absolutely uh, uh, enormous in terms of historiography and encyclopedic works. And uh, I think it is with the, the, this is one of the best documented, according to narrative sources, not archives, the best documented periods uh, of history, of Islamic history anyway. There's hardly any notable person who has not been recorded in some sources, biographical or or otherwise, or, or in the chronicles, there is, uh, and also in literature, in poetry, the poetry of the Mamluks is, uh, is very innovative, and it is being recently just discovered, uh, or its merits uh, are being discovered as a very much down-to-earth political uh, kind of, uh, of poetry that did not exist before. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Doris Burns-Abusef, Amira Benison, and Robert Irwin. Next week, we'll be talking about exoplanets, planets outside our own solar system. Thank you for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.